0: Everybody, invite you to take your Bibles to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. Continuing actually, only our second week in our series in the book of Romans. Going to look at Romans chapter 1. We're going to look at a number of verses, verses 1 through 17. So, I'm going to have my fast reading voice on. Um, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And if you're using a Bible there right in front of you, it'll be page 911. Here's what we read. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his Son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the Spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him who received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit and preaching the gospel of his Son is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times, and I pray that now at last, my, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you, so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong, that is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, In order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to the Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written... The righteous will live by faith. Father, we ask that you would teach us from your word this morning. Lord, as we consider the gospel, the good news, your good news, I pray that you would stretch us, excite us, convict us, do whatever work your spirit needs to do in our lives today, I pray in Jesus' name, amen the 1960s, a version of the Bible was in vogue for a while. It didn't have a a big selling for a long time because most scholars did not look at it as the most accurate uh, of translations from the original languages to the English, nor as readable as some. Uh, But the title of it was cool. And here's the title of the Bible. Uh, Good News for Modern Man. And actually, look, that was the cover. It looked like a newspaper article. Um, The title, I think, for this particular version of the Bible was one that Paul would have warmed to. His opening comments in his letter to the Roman Christians are filled with with references to the good news. Uh, He uses the word gospel, but the word gospel actually is from two words in the original, Uh, good news. It is the good news that he's talking about. And it is the driving passion of his life and his ministry to talk about the good news. Even in this book, his comments about bad news, people's sins, their willfulness, their pride, their self-absorption, are intended to highlight the, the, the glorious good news message that he's trying to talk about. This first series of messages um, in the first three chapters of the book of Romans are, I've entitled, um, Understanding the Human Condition, had to think about it, Understanding the Human Condition. Today's sermon is an interesting one in that because before Paul launches in verse 18 of chapter 1 into discussing the human condition, he focuses on what he believes is the, the solution uh, the remedy for the problems in the human condition, and that is the gospel, the good news. If you read, and if, you, if I had you looking back through this, you would see almost every other verse uh, he is highlighting the word gospel. It is this whole is a gospel-centric opening in these seventeen verses, and I'd like to look at five things regarding the news that he calls good news. Uh, That he's going to talk about. First of all, it is priority news. Verse 1, it says this. He says, It is the gospel of God that he's presenting. Not the gospel about God, but the gospel from God. He said, This is God's news. This is the news that God Himself wanted to make known. And not only is it good news from God, it is the good news. Throughout the history of humanity and recorded history, there's only one message throughout that time that God calls the good news, and it is what Paul is talking about here. About 2,000 years ago, there was an event that took place on a hillside outside of Bethlehem, a bunch of shepherds in the field, and an angel appeared to them and, and soon would be joined by what is described as thousands of other angels hovering around in the sky, and this angel made this statement, I bring you good news, which will produce great joy. And that good news, he says, is a savior, a deliverer has been born. And then all of a sudden, this angelic multitude of thousands of angels start singing. I mean, we have the scene in our nativity. We don't quite have that many flying around, but but there's a lot of them. And they're, they're, the picture is there shouting for joy. They're praising. They're excited. Something is happening here a momentous occasion. Now, to really understand the significance of what's going on in that scene, you need to realize that this was a similar scene that took place millennia before. Job records the event in chapter 38 of the book of Job, verses 4 through 7, where God is discussing with Job Uh, Actually, Job has all these questions he wants God's to answer, and he answers some of them, but God says, look, you you can't, you don't have the reference points that I have. And And he addresses them in this way, and he uses the phrase, you'll hear it, the title, morning stars, which is another name for angels in the Old Testament. God says this to Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you understand who marked off its dimensions. Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Or, were, or what were its fa- footings set on? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together, and all the angels shouted for joy. This scene, apparently angels were the first beings, pa- first part of creation, even before the, the cosmos and other elements were, were brought in, certainly before humankind was formed. And while God was creating the new order, The new creation, the cosmos, and and particularly focusing in that passage on the earth and the inhabitants of earth. It says the angelic choir is going crazy, shouting for joy, praising God. They're looking at this resplendent, extravagant creation that God is bringing in. And they're just shouting with praises and excitement. But what happened after that is striking. Soon after, we don't know exactly how long after humans were created, they had what is called the fall. They rebelled against God. They turned away from God. They were, they were removed from the place of paradise, the Garden of Eden. And their sin had impact not only on themselves, but it actually had impact on all of creation. So that creation today, Romans 8 says, is groaning. Uh, we, we see the effects of, of, of the created order and uh, because of, of the marring and, and all of the creation is now impacted. It's an aberrant state. It's broken. It's a sin-ravaged world. We, we see the effect every day in the headlines, both among humanity and even the catastrophes in our world. Picture a world that is not how it was designed to be. Angels stop singing. We don't have any other record since the creation of them praising. Until... A hillside outside of Bethlehem when again the heavens are open and we look and hear the choirs again praising and glorying. Why? Because the Restorer has come, the Reclaimer, the one that will deliver creation and, and creation's inhabitants, the one that is the Savior of all, the, the Reconciler has come among us. And they look at a a creative world that is broken, a race that is marred, that is bearing the impact of life not how it was designed to be, and the angels say, I'm bringing you the good news. The good news is he's come. This is going to bring great joy. And God says to us, this is my good news. This is my gospel, that the Restorer has come, the Rescuer has come, the Savior has come. It's a priority news, because it is God's own message who has come to restore creation, the natural world of creation, to be released from its broken state in a day to come and to begin the process of restoring humans now. The second thing we find about this is that this is a promised news. Paul says it this way in verse 2, the gospel that God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Old Testament books are those Holy Scriptures, 39 books. And he says there are, there are numerous pictures that are actually promises that, of the good news that is going to be fulfilled in this savior that is coming the restorer the rescuer the deliverer strikingly the first one occurred almost immediately after the decay and the brokenness of the world began in genesis chapter 3 we have the account of of uh, the fall into sin that was um, the impetus of that the temptation of that the voice of that was the serpent satan one of the angels of God, actually the most powerful angel of God that rebelled against God and now is speaking into um, humans. Adam and Eve fallen into sin, and God addresses the serpent, Satan himself, with this statement in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He tells him, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel." this reference is referring, I'll show you this in a moment, the crushing his head is that the one that's going to come as the descendant, the seed of the woman who is Christ, is going to crush the head, destroy the power of, the, of, the, uh, of, of Satan himself. But he says, you're going to have the, you're, you're going to do harm to the seed. You will, because of sin and death, he will be killed. Now, Paul takes this and if you notice, in the go- I mentioned earlier, if we just bring up a slide about gospel, the word gospel is from two words. It's, it means you, it is transliterated "euangelion." You Eu means good, "angelion" is a a message or a news. An angel is actually an "angelos" is actually a messenger. That's literally what the word means. A "euangelion" is the good news. It is the gospel. This passage in Genesis 3.15 where God is saying I'm gonna, uh, that, that this one who comes is going to crush the head of the serpent has historically been known by theologians as the proto-euangelion. Literally, it is the first good news. It is the first mention of the Good News, Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, both late 1st century, actually early 2nd century writers. A recent guy, Derek Kidner, has I like his statement, the first glimmer of the gospel. As Paul says, you know, this gospel that is founded in Christ has been promised, well, all the way back, the very first promise was here, the Proto-Evangelion. The first gospel was in Genesis 3.15 that he has promised. Now, how do we know that this statement to statement is actually referring to Christ? Well, Paul tells us in our book, Romans 16, verse 20. Here's what he says. The God of peace, since it's a reference to Christ, will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying the power of Satan will be defeated by Christ. You are his bride. You are a part of Christ's body. All that Satan represents and his kingdom of darkness represents will ultimately be crushed under the feet of Christ and his church. This is what God promised right after the fall of humankind into sin and then followed it by many references to the coming Deliverer. And Paul says God has been promising the good news message for all this time. The third thing he tells us, it is a passed-on news in verses 9 through 15, he tells us this passing on of the gospel is an, is an obligation. Interesting verses in verse 14 and 15, Paul says this, I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Paul says, I, I, I have a sense of obligation to do this. Now, just for a minute, clarify who he's talking about. He says, to the Greeks and non-Greeks. The word non-Greeks is actually the word uh, barbaros. We get the word barbarian from it. It's an interesting word because it's what the Greeks called the people around them that they didn't consider cultured or educated. They, they were the, the barbarians. It's where we get the word from. But it's an interesting word, just a sidelight here. If you're an English major or you like English, you're going to recognize this, this, this word. It is an onomatopoeia. Anybody know that word? Come on. Okay, there's a few of you. I won't make you say it. Um, I won't make you define it. It is a, a word's pronunciation mimics or imitates its sound. For instance, we talk about the buzz of a bee. Well, that's the sound that a bee makes, so we take the word. We use words like the boom of an explosion or the cash register's Kaching, the click of a pen, the honk of a horn, a snake's hiss. We hear the sound. The Greeks looked at these individuals that were not a part of their culture. They didn't feel they had any art. They didn't have any fine uh, music. They were, they were just uncultured, uneducated vagabonds, even their language was, was gruff and, and uncultured. And the Greeks actually, and this is actually how the word was derived. They said, when they talk, it just sounds like bar, 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 bar. And they called them barbarians. That's actually where it came from. I didn't make that up. That's for real. So here they were. And Paul says, you may look at those barbarians as cast-offs But I feel the same obligation to them, I feel to you. Now, the striking thing about this, and this is a very practical application of this for us, is Paul does not say he's obligated in the same way to everybody. Paul is a Jew. He was raised as a Jew. He was trained under the most successful, well-known teacher of the Jews, Gamaliel, But he doesn't say, I have an obligation to the Jews with the gospel. There were others that Peter was called to the Jews with the gospel. But he he says, I am and I do feel an obligation to the Greeks, to the barbarians. So what do we learn from that? Well, first of all, we learn that the gospel is never designed to end with us. If you've been embraced by Jesus Christ and you have embraced him as your Savior, you are not the end game. The goal is that we would experience the gospel and also be passing on the gospel. And Paul says, I owe it to certain people. I feel compelled that the gospel was given to me but not only to me, but that I could be a conduit. You see, if you have embraced Jesus Christ as your Savior, somebody felt that obligation to you. Somebody talked to you. Somebody prayed for you. God used some human instrument in your life to pass that on. And he says, we are called to be extenders of the gospel. Now, he also says, we're not called to do that to everybody. We had a meeting uh, Last Monday and this past Monday, with all of our eight pastors, we spent two whole days just getting together, team building, but more importantly, envisioning, planning. We had fabulous, really, God time. But one of the things we looked at was this, this verse and reflected on it and just reminded ourselves that... Even in pastoral ministry, you can feel like you need to be focused on everybody. But if you're the director of student ministries, yes, you'll be involved with adults and people of other ages, but ultimately, you need to focus your your heart, your passion to that particular calling of people. If you're a parent, certainly your children are a part of those that God is calling you to. But I would say every one of you that knows Christ... You are called to have that group of people that God is just laying on your heart and say, these are, these are my people. These are my individual. Maybe it's your cubicle made at work. Maybe it's a couple of people in your ball club or in your class. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's not even the direct one, but it's a couple of houses down. It's not everybody. It's not the whole office. It's not the whole school. It's not the whole team. But there are people that God lays on our hearts, certainly the family we do life with, but others as well. And the reality that Paul is saying is, "I feel oblig- I feel I owe this to these people." Now the beautiful reality is we can learn from Paul on this. So how did Paul fulfill his obligation to people he felt obligated to share the gospel with? Number one: Paul. Paul talked to God about people more than he talked to people about God. That where we start is say, God, I sense you're, you're burdening my heart here. and I, God, just open doors, work in their lives. If not me, somebody else, infiltrate their lives. And maybe you start watching then as you start praying for this. And maybe all of a sudden, you, you know, you're just talking and you realize... And you're talking to the person and you say, bro, man, that's really a hard thing you're going through. I'm going to pray for you. And a week later you come back and just say, you know, I've been praying for you. How you doing? And maybe that's the way you enter into their lives in a very practical way. But as you pray for someone... You will find your heart, if you're continually praying, continually prompted to pray, you'll find your heart looking for opportunities. It'll just be natural. You don't have to be thinking, okay, tomorrow, you know, I got, I, tomorrow I'm going to go in there and I'm going to get a gospel conversation. Well, maybe, probably not, but maybe. But what you can say is, Lord, tomorrow I'm available. I'm watching. You know, I, I, I don't expect to share the gospel, you know, at work, but Maybe there's just something that comes up. Maybe it is just a prayer need that I can, I can embrace and be praying for them and, and, and bring them to you because it's far more important to talk to God about people than it is to talk to people about God. We start vertically. My dad and somebody told me after the last service that this is actually something that, that uh, CBMC, Christian Businessmen's uh, organization, encourages guys to do. I didn't know that. But my dad, when he was, uh, he had been in business for many years. One time he showed me his Bible, and my dad was a 40-year Bible guy. You know, his Bible was, he was a neat nick, but his Bible was, was hurting. Um, it was tired, and he had to repair it and get the cover fixed and all those things. But it was his Bible. And in his Bible, when you opened it up, he had scotch tape, this 4x6 card, that had the names of ten men that God had laid on his heart for years. I I remember the last time we talked about it, uh, eight of them at that point, I don't know how many were saved by the time my dad was gone, but eight of them had embraced Christ over the years. Some of those guys were back from Long Island when we had lived there years and years ago. Some of them were still at work where he was over at Lockheed Martin as as a leader there. Some of them were in our church. But I remember that he had one, one guy that he had in the book was a guy in our church whose wife had come to Christ. This guy attended off and on for years. My dad had met him. And one time, my dad, he didn't usually do this with his, with his list, but he really felt prompted to go up to this guy, and he just said, the game, guy's name was not Tim, but I'll say Tim. He said, Tim, I just want you to know that... Uh, I've been praying for you every day for the last seven or eight years, and, uh, and I'm not ever going to stop. And uh, the guy was like, well, that's, that's cool. You know, that's neat. But, but when Tim embraced Jesus Christ, who do you think he went to first? You're not obligated to be sharing the gospel and to be doing life in a, in a ministering way with everybody. And if you try to, you're going to not do it to anybody. But you are obligated to some people. There are people that God is going to lay on your heart, and I I would encourage you, maybe, maybe 10. Some of those will be your family. You say, Lord, just who are the people that you just want me to bring before you? And as I talk to you about them, I'm also asking if you want me to, I'm willing to talk to them about you. There is, a, there is a, a responsibility, a privilege to pass on the news. And the wonderful thing about the Lord is he doesn't ask you to share the gospel outside of who you are. I mean, if you're a super fantastic real estate salesman that you could talk anybody into buying anything, then then... Yeah, you're going to be outspoken about everything. But if you're a person, you know, and, and I, know, I, know, I know one person who was a great evangelist, but she was, I mean, every time she bought a, um, a new washing machine, she was sure everybody on earth should have that washing machine. It was easy for her on a plane to talk about Jesus because she talked about everything with that enthusiasm. Most of you aren't wired that way. God isn't asking you to be that person. God is just asking you to be you. But he's asking you to be an available you. It says, Lord, lay on my heart these people, and then I promise to pray and and to do what Paul did in Colossians 4, where he just said to the believers, guys, would you pray for me? And he asked, he had had a two-fold prayer request in Colossians 4, 1 and 2. He says, would you pray that God will open doors for me to share, and then that I will take advantage of those opportunities? It's a passed-on obligation, and it is an obligation that This passing on is is ongoing. He says in verse 15, uh, I want to share the gospel to you who are at Rome. Now, he's talking to Christians here. He's reminding us that the good news of the gospel is not just about Jesus' work in rescuing us from the penalty of sin, but recovering us from its impact. At the gospel, we live gospel-centric lives. It's always about Christ. It's always about leaning into Jesus and allowing Jesus to, to, to change us and transform us from within. It's always gospel. And Paul says, I want to come and, and help you in, in continuing to grow in the power of the gospel in your own lives. All right, it's fourth. It's a powerful news. Verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentiles. The word power is dynamite. It's dynamite. It's where we get from it. He says this gospel is is dynamite. Now, here's the striking thing of the world where Paul's writing. He's writing the church at Rome. He's in a a culture that is Roman. And basically, there is culture was a pluralistic culture. It's just like ours. Pluralism means there are many ways. It's an ism of plurals. We believe there's lots of ways to God, you know. And, 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 and as a matter of fact, the, the most famous temple, and still it is one of the, the most um, beautifully remaining buildings of the early centuries of the Roman Empire, is the temple that is right in the center of Rome. I've been there and it's called the Pantheon. It's, the, it's a circular building with a dome roof. And the Pantheon literally means, pan means all, th- us means God. It means all gods are honored here. I mean, we believe all gods are, 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 are the focus. And however you worship God, however you want to get to God, whatever you call God, whatever God is, whoever he is, however many gods you want to have, This is the place to come to worship because that's how we Romans look at our faith. Now here comes Paul, and what do you think were the words they used for him? You're an exclusivist. One way to God in Jesus? You got to be kidding me! You're you're narrow-minded. You are a bigot. And Paul says, "I'm not ashamed of this. I'm not ashamed of this gospel because it's not my gospel. This wasn't my idea." I truly, wholeheartedly, from the very bottom of my shoes all the way up through, am convinced this gospel of a rescuer coming, of changing people, of dying for us, of rising for us, who will restore the world and create a Garden of Eden out of the cosmos, new heavens, new earth. I believe he is real and I believe he's come to bring life to anybody that embraces. He says, This isn't a gospel for the Jews, it isn't a gospel for the Romans, it isn't a gospel for the for the barbarians, it's a gospel for all of them. And he says, I'm not ashamed. I'm not embarrassed by this. We live in a, in a pluralistic day. It's easy to feel, ah oh, man, they talk about Jesus or people know how you know they just feel exclusive, and who am I to say? You know? Well, Paul says, guys, I'm not ashamed of it. It's the dunamis. It's the dynamite that is not available just to Jews or Greeks or barbarians. It's for every ethnicity, every culture, every tribe. It is a powerful news. And lastly, it is the perfecting news. Uh, Perhaps the most famous Verse in the book of Romans, or the most, one of the most famous and certainly the most important in, in the first chapter is Romans 1, where Paul says this. And he tells us why the gospel does have the power to change people's lives, why it is the dunamis of God. For in the gospel, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Within our hearts and consciences as people, we recognize and have a sense that knowing God and being in relationship with God and going to heaven with God requires holiness and righteousness this is why every religion on the world tries to help people get better and and to earn their way to God they may use different verbiage they may use the verbiage of you need to do good works you need to have your good works be heavier than your bad works they, they may say you know you need to do penance and if you do enough penance you'll earn your way if you're kind enough if, if you're generous enough They're all different statements that all different religions would argue, but everyone's trying, recognizing there is a sense of unworthiness to do heaven, to to enter into personal relationship with the holy God. I need to be righteous. I, I need to have some degree of holiness in my life. The issue is that none of us measure up. And Paul summarizes that in Romans three nineteen and 20. And he talks about trying to, to earn relationship with God by the works of the law. And that's his expression for saying, works of the law is saying by keeping the Ten Commandments, by trying to, to do the right things. And here's how he summarizes it in Romans 3, 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, under the law system, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one... No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Actually, the law just shows us how far we fail, he says. Nobody measures up. Nobody can make it. Nobody can do it on their own. And the idea is that, that the law is lofty. It speaks to us specifically and, and dramatically. The law is not a bunch of rules where you pick and choose the ones you're, you're good at. And overlook the rest. The book of James argues this way. James chapter 2, James is talking, and he says, um, he says you know, that, that whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you don't commit adultery, but do commit murder, you, you have become a lawbreaker. That's what he says. Now, in the context, now, now we might say, well, what's the problem with that? I haven't done adultery or murder. Well, in the context of that passage in James 2, he's actually talking about what was happening in the churches, and he's using that, those, that statement as a, as a rebuttal, because what was happening, people were favoring the, the wealthy and well-known, the mucky mucks, and giving them the best seats in the service, and people that came in, it says, in shabby clothes, and, and sort of nobodies. They put them in a, in a back room or on the outside the circle, and he says, that's That's mistreating them. That's basically a form of the spirit of murder. And he uses this argument. He says, Look, maybe you don't cheat on your wife, but if you're showing favoritism in the church, you've broken the law and are guilty of all. And now the guy may be sitting there going, You gotta be kidding. That's like comparing a hydrogen bomb to a to a firecracker. I mean, I'm not doing the hydrogen bomb. Why don't I get credit for that? But Paul, what James is saying is you get to look at the, at, at, at the law as a chain, across chasm. You break one link, that whole chain breaks. To break one part of the law, he says, is to break, be guilty of breaking all of it. That no one will be declared righteous in his sight on their own. This brings us back to Romans chapter 1, verse 17. And here's what he says. There is no way that we're going to be declared righteous in our works. He says we're always going to fall. But he says there is a righteousness that is from first to last by faith. Romans 3 says it's the the faith in Christ that is available of that righteousness. And I'd like to just illustrate it, and this I'm going to close with. Basically, this is what I would call the two sides of the cross, that we're told that Jesus Christ died for sinners. And in dying for our sins, it says our sins were laid on him, laid to his account, that It was as if Jesus Christ became guilty of our sins. He's liable for them, culpable for them. It's as if Christ did them. That's why it says, when it says a person is crucified, they always put a placard above their head that listed what they were guilty of. Colossians chapter 2, it says, Our sins were nailed to Christ's cross. It's saying, above the head of Christ, symbolically, every sin in thought, word and deed of you, of me, was laid there. And Christ became as if he was guilty for them. He became liable, culpable for our sin. And when he died on the cross, it says, and, and, and we embrace the gift of the cross, it means that Jesus Christ has provided utter forgiveness for us because he has died in our place. He has received the punishment, the penalty of our sin. It is the beauty of one side of the cross But I would suggest to you that is not not enough to qualify you for heaven. What that does is that restores you to a state of innocence, that you are now as if you've never done anything bad, you've never done anything good. All of us think that which you've done have already been, been forgiven, but it is not innocence that qualifies a person for heaven. It is Righteousness. I don't know if you've ever wondered about this. If you ever wondered why Jesus Christ didn't just come down from heaven and six hours later do the cross thing, rise from the dead? And, because that's why he came, right? He did, came to do the work. But Jesus Christ lived here for over 30 years. Why? Well, we're told. It says that he came to fulfill all righteousness. His entire life was qualifying him to do the work of the cross, that he completely fulfilled every righteous requirement, every thought, deed, every situation. Even it says in his horrible sufferings, it said he was fulfilling righteousness in the way he responded. And now we're told that Jesus Christ lays his righteousness to our account. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he who didn't know any sin became sin for us. And then it says that our righteousness might become, that his righteousness might become ours. In other words, you become liable for Christ's godliness. You become culpable for Christ's righteousness. You now stand if you have embraced Christ in his work upon the cross, if you have received Jesus as your Savior, or in that moment when you do, not only are your sins forgiven, but his righteousness is laid to your account, and you can accurately, theologically say, you are as acceptable to God as is Christ himself, because you stand in his righteousness. And Paul says... This is the gospel. This is the good news that Jesus came to offer, that there's a righteous standing with God that is available. And it is, as Romans 17, 117 says, and it is by faith from start to finish, alpha to omega, A to Z, there's no place we don't look at the cross and say, Jesus, well, thank you for your righteousness, and, and you know, I'm, I'm grateful for all those puzzle pieces that you filled in. I, I see a couple here that I'll work on, you know, that sort of finish the picture, so I'm completely righteous. No. He says this whole thing is by faith. It is what the cross does. The gospel declares us accepted Worthy for heaven, worthy for relationship, because we stand in what the theologians used to call, still do call, an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of ourselves. The gospel is God's good news. It's the means of reclaiming rebellious sinners. He gives them an alien outside themselves, righteous standing with God. The good news reminds us that Jesus will one day bring about a new heaven and new earth when the two will be merged. Be one, all creation will become a cosmic paradise, a cosmic garden of Eden. All of this will happen because of the gospel, because of the good news that a Savior has come and he's come for people like us. I don't know where you are today. I don't know if you are trying. Maybe, maybe coming to church is your way or one way of, of, of sincerely seeking to try to build a relationship with God. Maybe, maybe you sense the need of something more in your life. What I want you to know is Jesus Christ has done for you all that needs to be done. It is your calling to, by faith, receive him into your life as Savior and Lord. It is the great good news. The bad news is we can't do it on our own. The bad news is we are separated from him because of our own rebellion. The good news is just what those angels were, were all excited about outside of that hillside in Bethlehem when they realized Man, we look at a world that's broken. We look at people that are broken. We look at all this sorrow because of sin. But the one who has come to heal it all has come. Lord, we look to you this morning, and you look into our hearts. God, how I pray that you would speak truth into people wherever they are. For some, that truth may be impress upon them their personal need of embracing Jesus as their own Savior. God, how I pray you would. For some that are here that know Christ and just sort of living in the hectic, demanding life, exhausting life that we live, Lord, restore to us a passion, a passion that is coupled with a sense of obligation not a legalistic burden or a chain around our neck, but rather a joyful reality that there are people in our world that you've called us to feel a sense of obligation to pray for, to invest in, that you have intentionally, purposely brought those people in our lives, whether we're 10 years old or we're 100 years old, that every single one of us in this room is called to have certain people that you're asking us to bring before you, to talk to you about, but also to be available to share you to them as you open that door. Lord, prompt us as you see our need this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now go in peace to love and serve. Enjoy the Lord.